Let's face it, we've all been the new kid before. Whether we were the actual new kid at a school or the new player on a sports team. Even as an adult, starting a new job or switching careers can feel daunting. Both because change is scary, but also because there may be extra pressure to form new habits or do things differently this time around. I felt this way just the other month when I started a big new work project with some friends. I'm used to doing what you might call creative work, things like brainstorming and copywriting and working with designers. But now, all of a sudden, I'm sitting down looking at a complicated spreadsheet filled with rows of dates and tasks to keep track of. And even though this new team knows each other well, some of us have even been friends for years, we all still feel a little bit like new kids. And it feels a lot like the first day of school. And of course, with 2020 and the big remote work shift, many of us are having these new kid experiences in a brand new reality without ever leaving our homes. I'm Tiffany Jones-Brown, and this is Remotely Curious, a podcast from Dropbox that asks all the questions about hybrid, remote, or as we call it, virtual first work. I wanted to know how remote work can actually help us when we're starting something new. Today on the show, we're going to talk to behavioral scientist Katie Milkman, who says this moment in time is ripe for instituting fresh starts. And she's developed evidence-based techniques to help us stick to goals we can set for ourselves. First, though, I wanted to hear from another newbie, brand creative strategist Alexandra Brown. She started at Dropbox late last year. I've been um, with this role for about 10 months now, so I would say I'm still a bit of a new kid and, you know, still in the throes of getting to know people across the organization. It's definitely different starting something remote because you you don't have those hallway walk-bys or being able to see faces. The funniest thing for me is not knowing how tall people are. Um, and then when you do get to meet them in person, realizing they're taller or shorter than you might have assumed based on seeing them from the, the chest up. And Alexandra said starting a new job remotely was sort of surreal because there wasn't a physical change. I didn't have a desk to clean up when I left my previous role. And when you put in notice, you're not sitting in a room with HR to, to kind of have that conversation. You're doing it over a screen and then you don't see those people ever again. And you, more often than not, with the way things have been, leaving an office and going into a new office, you have to make those signifiers for yourself. I tend to do things like reshuffle what my work desk at home looks like so that I can denote a change of seasons, you know, or a change in job, put some different pictures up, maybe have a different bit of a setup so that I can feel kind of a fresh start. Fresh starts. That's something our guest on this episode knows all about. Katie Milkman is a behavioral scientist, and she studies how we can make positive change that sticks. She's a professor at the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania. And she's written a great book called How to Change, The Science of Getting from Where You Are to Where You Want to Be, where she talks all about how we can use new beginnings to totally change our lives. So there is no better person to talk to about those new kid moments and how we can take full advantage of them. I'm curious if you can tell us a time, about a time when you were new at a job and what changes you just experienced going through that? 
Oh gosh. I feel like I've been new at a lot of different jobs, even though amusingly, uh, I started my first faculty position at the Wharton School 14 years ago because that was a pretty big one moving from Boston, where I was a graduate student, down to Philadelphia and taking on this pretty major role shift in academia, being a graduate student. And then poof, overnight, you turn into a professor at a fancy school and everyone treats you differently. And that was a real shock. I mean, it was a positive shock. There's lots of negative shocks in careers. It was very nice to be treated differently, but... It also came with some interesting challenges, in part because I started this job as a 27-year-old woman teaching students who were, on average, older than I was, who were in our MBA program. And lots of interesting challenges arose there, things like walking into my first classroom and having one of the students ask whether I'd been able to get a seat because he heard it was really popular and he hadn't been able to get one. And I had to explain that I was actually teaching the class. Other things that I would say were interesting transitioning were just figuring out how to manage a much busier calendar. I actually vividly remember the moment when I realized I had to move from my old paper diary to a digital system, right? As a grad student, you don't have that much going on. It's totally feasible to keep a little tiny journal or notebook that has your couple of meetings a week on it and mostly rely on your memory to get places. As a faculty member, suddenly you have many, many more pulls on your time. According to Katie, these moments of being a new kid, taking a leap and embarking on a big life transition, they're the perfect time for a change. Well, one positive at any moment when you start a new job or come back from a leave is something that I've studied called the fresh start effect. So my collaborators and I, specifically, I'll just shout out Heng Chen Dai of UCLA, who's a key partner on all of this work, look at how people behave differently at moments in life that feel like new beginnings. So Mm. the most famous fresh start is January 1. You come back from New Year's, you feel like, okay, the calendar flipped. I have a fresh start, clean slate. It's a new year. I'm going to set resolutions. And P.S. there's a social norm around doing that. And people are dramatically more likely to set goals, show up at the gym, do all sorts of things that are goal related in January. But what we've shown in our work is that January is just one famous example of the fresh start effect. And there are many other days in our lives that also feel like fresh starts. But then there's actual transition points that feel like fresh starts too, like returning from maternity leave or starting a new job. When you have that sense of a fresh start and a new beginning and a clean slate, it makes you feel a separation from things that have gone wrong in the past with goals you were hoping to pursue. And that actually seems to boost people's motivation to try again. And so we're more motivated Mm -hmm. and make more efforts to pursue goals at these fresh start moments. So that's great. When you come back to work and you feel like you have a fresh start, it is an opportunity, even if it is truly in your head. (laughs) And it is, right? In some ways, it's sort of a bias. But that's all right. Lean into the bias because it gives you that extra motivation. um, And it's a perfect time then to set goals and make plans about how you're going to achieve those goals. The first thing Katie says to do is to set an aspirational goal. Goals work best for us when they are a little bit of a stretch, something that is going to push you to do more than you usually would, um, but also achievable. So it can't be, you know, I'm going to I'm going to become, you know, the CEO by the end of the year of my Fortune 500 company. And I'm currently, you know, a, a VP or something. Right. That's not a reasonable goal. And ideally, your goal is also quite concrete. So you might say, like, I'm going to devote 
100 hours this year to uh, this kind of training or to this kind of activity. Be, be sort of as concrete as possible. The second thing is to break that big goal down into smaller bits and pieces. So say say you want to complete a training module, a training class. You want to learn a new programming language, say, over the course of the next year. What's the bite-sized piece I'm going to take out of that goal each week, say, or even each day? When you break down a big goal into its weekly or or daily components, it feels more approachable and we get more done. When you ask people, do you want to save $5 a day instead of asking $150 a month, you see um, more than a quadrupling of how many people are like, oh yeah, I want to do that, even though it's actually the same thing. So make that big goal bite size. And then finally, you want to actually make a plan. When are you going to do it? Is it going to be Thursdays at five o'clock right after you are wrapping everything else up? What's the location where you're going to do it? The more you get into those specifics, the less likely you are to actually procrastinate when the time comes, because now it's not a vague commitment. It's a concrete Mm. plan. We don't like backing out on concrete plans. So there's lots of research showing that making those detailed plans, breaking the big goal down into bite-sized pieces, it makes follow through dramatically more likely. And then one last thing I want to add Everything I've said so far, I think, should feel pretty intuitive, even if we don't all actually practice uh, these steps every time we have a big goal. At least we could kind of understand, oh, yeah, I probably should be breaking it down. Oh, yeah, I probably should put it on my calendar and have a plan. But this part, I think, is counterintuitive, but critically important. Very few people do something a little different, which is to think about a fun way to pursue their goals. Think about how they'll make it enjoyable. But interestingly, it turns out that that makes an enormous difference. So when people are prompted to try to pursue goals in ways that they enjoy, as opposed to focusing on the most efficient path they can take to get Hmm. to the end line, they actually do better when they're focused on the fun. And the reason is they persist. So if you think about this, think about exercise, right? Your your goal is to get in shape and you're like, what's the maximally efficient way I can do it? I'm going to get on the the Stairmaster and I'm going to burn calories at, at an incredibly high rate versus thinking about a fun way, which is I'm going to go to Zumba classes with my friends. You are going to hate your workouts on that Stairmaster and you are going to do it once and you're not going to come back. But the Zumba class with your friends, you're going to do every week. And to get to your end goal of getting in shape, you actually need to keep coming. So if we don't find ways to pursue our goals that we enjoy, we quit. And persistence is key to almost all of the big, important goals we set in life. Sometimes tandem goals make it more fun. There's a social component. Um, I have studied something called temptation bundling, where I will only allow myself access to something tempting while I'm simultaneously doing an activity that would otherwise feel like a chore. So I only get to binge watch my favorite TV show while I'm exercising at the gym or listen to a favorite podcast like this one while I'm catching up on household chores. After reading your book, uh, I was inspired to try various bits of your method. And so I I didn't want to eat refined sugar. And then I want to run a 5K by April 16th. And so what I did was I set an intention. I made a plan. I told my close friends. And I said, please hold me accountable to pay this very large sum of money to an organization that I find extraordinarily distasteful if I mess up any part of this plan. And they thought it was funny. And they said, yes, uh, uh, we will do that. I have found it incredibly motivating and specifically the part where I have to pay money to an organization that I don't want to pay money to. Can you say more about that? 
Yes, I love that you're using a commitment device. I hadn't gone there. <laughs> so we're quite used to being managed by others in this way, right? It's it's tr- You're used to your government saying, we'll fine you if you speed because you might be tempted to do that, but that will be bad and we want to prevent it and we want you to know there will be a penalty. Or your boss saying, hey, here's a hard deadline. If you don't get this to me by this date, we're gonna you're going to be in big trouble. What's weird about commitment devices is we're not used to self-penalizing, but it's really just the same system. If you want to up the ante for yourself... So so there's a penalty, you can use a commitment device. They're very counterintuitive. They work incredibly well. And, and the research and evidence is incredibly strong that they help. One of my favorite studies looks at smoking cessation, which is an incredibly challenging um, target. And in fact, a lot of behavior change research stays away from things like that because there's chemical addiction involved. And we often think our tools aren't going to be potent enough to, fa- you know, to handle a problem like that. But in this case, what was done was people who wanted to quit smoking were randomly assigned to get standard smoking cessation tools, or they got standard smoking cessation tools plus the chance to put money in an account that they would have to forfeit if they didn't quit smoking within six months. And they measured quit rates across the groups that both had been given a way to put money on the line, a commitment device, and who hadn't. And what was amazing is about, there was about a 30% increase in, in smoking cessation for the people who just got access to this. I am so fascinated by this. Um, I'm trained in mindful self-compassion and really the entire method there is something like go easy on yourself, be compassionate towards yourself. You want to not activate your inner critic, which activates your threat system, which then makes you less likely in theory to achieve your goals, if you will. However, this method, which feels more like the stick method, the hard commitment method, seems to both totally bypass any inner critic of mine. Another thing that I've become curious about after reading Katie's book is how an enormous fresh start, like the pandemic and everyone's quick transition to working from home, could help or get in the way of goal setting. I want to go back to fresh starts. What are some of the challenges or opportunities, more of them that might arise when we're starting something new like we did during the pandemic? There are lots of challenges associated with starting new things when we don't have routines in place, when things don't feel familiar. We are not in autopilot. Instead, we have to think more deeply about each decision and each part of a process. And that can be a real challenge and and it can have meaningful costs. If you have a routine that's worked for you for a long time to even say getting getting to work in the morning, getting your breakfast, getting your caffeine, getting your walk in, in that energizes you and you're ready for the day and all of a sudden there's a disruption and you're you're now say working from home. So you have to think deliberately about how to create new routines. And and that's just a challenge because it's easier when we can live our life on autopilot and focus on what's new as opposed to everything being new. I guess one other challenge I want to point out about fresh starts specifically, not necessarily just the one that we experienced in, you know, during the pandemic, but in general, one thing we know is while fresh starts are very motivating to those of us who have aspirations we haven't yet achieved because they give us this clean slate and a sense that, okay, I can start over. It's a new me. I'm in a new era all my past failures are behind me. So that's good when there's something aspirational you haven't achieved. But if things have been going really well, 
if you've been hitting your sales goals or, you know, knocking it out of the park in terms of your relationships with coworkers, and you really want to hold on to those successes, well, now a fresh start is actually disrupting a good thing you've got going. And, and there's research by my collaborator, Heng Chen Dai, looking at the fact that um, while resets are very beneficial in terms of sort of setting new goals and, um, and feeling ready to take on new th- challenges, for th- people who are having a lot of success, they can be harmful and disruptive. So I think that's the other thing that's important to keep in mind. And and my favorite study she did on this actually looked at trades of professional baseball players to new teams and uh, very cleverly compared players who are being traded. They were all being traded to a new team, but she compared people who are being traded within league versus across leagues. And it turns out if you're traded within leagues, you get to hold on to your all your summary statistics to date, right? Like your batting average, these things that are very important to your identity as a successful pro baseball player. But if you're traded across leagues, everything is wiped clean. You start again. You have a reset on all your season to date statistics. Turns out players who were traded across leagues and got that fresh start effect, they were able to improve. Like, yeah, I had a crummy batting average, but now it's wiped clean and I'm going to knock it out of the park, literally. So I do think we need to keep an eye out when we are at fresh starts or transition points for what are the things that have been going really well Hmm. and be more deliberate about thinking, how are we going to hold on to that momentum? And for things that have been going badly, great, lean into the fresh start, like set new goals, let's pursue them anew, let's think about it differently. But but when things are going well, we have to be really careful and try to actually create more connectivity with the period before so we don't lose the momentum. Hmm. So interesting. And then what about changes that are a bit tougher? So say you're forced to quit or you lose a job or something really scary happens. Are there any silver linings? Could you talk a, a little bit about that? So I certainly don't want to downplay that there are enormous costs psychologically and real costs when we face those kinds of experiences, not not just in our, you know, to your financial situation, your health and so on. Um, I think the silver lining that is going to sound surprising is that it disrupts a very common bias, um, which you might have heard of before called escalation of commitment. In general, we are too resistant to change. We don't like experimenting with new things. Um, our psychology is such that any deviation from the path we're on feels like a loss as opposed to a gain um, because this is what I have now and you want me to deviate. That's And, and losses loom larger than gains. We, we experience losses as there's lots of different estimates out there, but they're larger, maybe, maybe even twice as large in some contexts in terms of their psychological impact. So this is a really pernicious bias. If I had to say what's the worst bias of them all that we know about as decision scholars, I might say it's escalation of commitment or status quo bias, this tendency to be stuck in your ways. And when you experience a forced quitting incident or your organization suddenly switches from an in-person organization to an online organization. There's a lot of bad that comes with that, but you were just forced to experiment with new things. And forced experimentation turns out to be largely good because we under-experiment and that means we under-adapt and we don't explore enough to find the optimal way of doing things. I'm sure you and some of the people listening can think of things that they were forced to experiment with 
during the pandemic that they will never experiment with again, whether it was like freeze dried mm. meals because we couldn't get anything else in the, gro- the grocery store was sold out or was, we were too frightened to leave our house. And so we ate peanut butter for th- uh, three weeks or, or, you know, I didn't get to see another human. That was the worst thing ever. Right. So there were lots of bad experiences you were forced to experiment with and you learned never again. But then you probably also experiment with some things and you were like, wow, this is great. Like maybe you started a zoom group with friends who are all over the world who you never normally talk to. And you were like, I could sit down with these people I love once a month on Zoom and have a really wonderful catch up. And I never thought to do that. Whatever it was, whether it was in your personal life or your work life, you were forced to try new things. And that is good. Forced quitting forces experimentation. And when you experiment, you identify things almost always that are at least some of them worth keeping and we under experiment. So that's why that's the silver lining I would see. And um, in organizations, my favorite example of this, Adam Grant, he uh, was a guest on my podcast recently and was telling me about how hard he had been trying to get some fortune 500 CEOs to experiment with work from home before the pandemic or even hybrid. And everyone said he wanted to do a test. He wanted to do an A-B test and evaluate. Does it have an effect on productivity? Is it positive? Is it negative? Let's see. Everyone said, you're crazy. We'll never do it. And then, you know, six months into the pandemic, a huge number of the people who had told him you're absolutely crazy, we'll never do it, had announced they're never coming back to the office. So uh, I think that's a nice example of the silver lining. It used to be when you started a new job, there would be a big shift in your daily routine, like you'd go into an office or you had these in-person rituals to help you kind of joggle your habits. But now that we're remote, we often start our jobs in the same desks, in our same bedrooms. So it's kind of less of a fresh start. Are there other ways we can simulate the fresh start effect when we can't change scenery? Yeah, it's a really great question. So my research has not identified ways that we can create fake fresh starts. We mostly focus on dates on the calendar that create a sense of new beginnings. We did some experiments where we tried dates and trying to frame dates that people might not have noticed and might not have associated with fresh starts. Like, hey, it's the 100th day of the year. It's a fresh start who knows when the hundredth day of the year is, right? So this is a surprise. That has no effect. We can't just, we can't fake it. However, I do think there's really interesting research on the power of rituals. And I think that's a different, it's a different psychology, but rituals create a lot of power for people feeling ready to take on, say, a work day or uh, a family challenge. And so um, I don't think it's the same psychology as Fresh Starts, but to the extent that you're thinking about how do I make these transitions work, If you listen to the first season of Remotely Curious, you'll remember we did an episode all about this, about how to design new rituals to help with transitions in a remote world. Katie also offered another remote work-friendly way to create change, form a remote advice club. So one really counterintuitive finding, I think, from research I've gotten to be involved in is that Not only do we benefit when we raise our hand and say, ah, I have a question, I need your advice. And then some wise person and kind person bestows that advice on us. But actually, we benefit from being the one asked for advice. So Lauren Eskris Winkler, who's a professor at 
the Kellogg School of Management and Northwestern University led a couple of projects, one of which I got to be involved in that showed when we are asked for advice, it boosts our confidence, our competence, and improves our outcomes. So my favorite study of this we did with actually high school students, but she studied it in lots of contexts. And we just put them in the position of advice giver to their younger peers. For 10 minutes, they filled out a survey and offered advice to younger students on how to study more effectively. And almost miraculously, advising others improved those students' own grades. It forces us to introspect about things that are likely to work for us, because now we're on the hook to tell someone else what to do. And then once we've said it to someone else, we're going to feel like a hypocrite if we don't take our own advice. So for all these reasons, advice giving is a really powerful tool to help the advisor. And a way that I use this in my life and that I think lots of people can use it in their professional lives is I actually have an advice club. And it's a group of women at a similar career stage with similar career goals. And when we face challenging um, issues, I'm not sure how to handle this situation. We just send an email advice club and um, Hmm. in the subject line and and we offer each other wisdom. Wow. That is so just cool actually. And I'm thinking of ways that, you know, we have, I have informal advice clubs going on that I want to make more formal. So um, I appreciate that. Are there any times or parts of our lives where we should avoid the kinds of habit making techniques you've been talking about? Hmm. I don't, I don't think so. Um, I guess I would say one important caveat is um, this isn't really a time to avoid them, but it is important to recognize that even if you do everything right, even if you follow all the science on how to achieve goals, sometimes things don't work out. In fact, a lot of the time things don't work out. It often requires trying again. Failure is part of the process of getting to big ambitious goals. So I guess I would say if you keep trying the same thing, getting the same bad result. It's important to take that as feedback and think about, is there a different approach I could take to achieving this goal or or even to define the goal more broadly? I keep going back to the metaphor of getting in shape. It's like a common goal that most people can relate to. Say you're saying, you know, I'm going to go to the gym regularly to get in shape and it's not working. You don't have to give up on the higher level goal, which is getting in shape, but it might be feedback that like, okay, maybe the gym isn't the way. And so you might back up and think, how? what's another path to the higher level goal I want to achieve that I could try, maybe that uses all the same tools, but that might not put up as many barriers for me. Maybe I need to, you know, work out at home or with a friend, take speed walks in the morning. I'm curious how employers or team leaders can take advantage of timing to create cultural change. So maybe orientation weeks used to be a natural time for that, but we don't always have those anymore. So, yeah. Yeah, it's a great question. So first I want to say I have not studied this. It's a natural outgrowth of the work I've done on Fresh Starts would be to think, can we use these Fresh Starts not just to nudge individuals towards change in their own lives, but to create organizational change. And I would love to do some research on that. So I haven't studied it, but theoretically, it it certainly makes sense from what we have studied that moments of transition in an organization, whether that's, hey, you know, we're closing a quarter and opening a new one as an organization, or we're having a, um, a retreat or Uh, some sort of outside evaluation, or even just a celebration of an event. It's our 45th anniversary or our, you know, whatever it is. 
those could be moments that may feel like fresh starts to individuals and therefore could be good opportunities to try to create resets. We know they will resonate in terms of goal setting, and they may also resonate in terms of organizational shifts in priorities um, because they feel like fresh starts. So all of that makes sense to me. But again, we don't have evidence beyond what we've done showing, look, these are moments when people create more goals. Katie, thank you so much for this very intuitive but surprising and also just grounded and doable advice for us. I really appreciate it. I loved reading your book and thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. Katie Milkman is a behavioral scientist and professor at the Wharton School of Business. You can find links to her podcast and her book on our website. So here are my takeaways from our interview. Number one, being the new kid can be overwhelming, but it can actually give us the fresh start we might need to form new habits. The most recent fresh start we all experienced is working from home. So think of this as an opportunity. Number two, if you want to set a goal during a fresh start time, remember to pick something aspirational but achievable. Break it into small pieces and consider starting a remote advice club to help you along the way. Number three, forced changes like having to work remotely all of a sudden don't always feel great, but they're a fantastic time to experiment with new ways of working and being. If you haven't actually had to move into an office, try to see if you can create a ritual to make the newness seem more new. For tips, you can listen to our episode on designing work from home rituals in season one. And finally, remember to cut yourself some slack, find out what works and make it fun. When I started this huge new work project I mentioned earlier, I thought of it as a fresh start and tried pairing it with another goal, getting back into running and I impulsively signed up for a 5K. Well, then I got COVID and remember that running hurts my knees, so I decided not to force it. Instead, I tried SoulCycle, which I can easily walk to in between meetings, and my knees are much happier for it. Remotely Curious is brought to you by Dropbox and our friends at Cosmic Standard. Our hardworking producers are Beauty Nazaro, Samaya Adams, Angela Johnston, and Asia Pilar Simpson. Our editor is Nina Gensler-Debs. Our technical director is Jacob Winnick. And our executive producer is Eliza Smith. Our designers are April Rosenstock, Belize Camille Tolentino, Fanny Lohr, Gabriela Tayenda, and Justin Tran. Our theme song is composed by Doug Stewart. And I'm your host, Tiffany Jones-Brown. Special thanks to Alexandra Brown for sharing her new kid story and to Katie Milkman for her advice and wisdom. For more tips on setting new habits at work, check out the Dropbox Virtual First Toolkit at remotely-curious.com. 